Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. In fabric or were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you thinking about how 20 yards of linen equals one red dress? <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Horror Vanguard. I am one of your co-ghosts, Ash, joined, as always, by the one, the only, the incredible, the Licrit guy. How's it going, John? Hey, everybody. How we doing? I am very excited to be back making another podcast. What could be better? Right. Yeah. There's nothing going on in the world right now. We just have horror movies to talk about. Just just keep those blinders <laughs> bolted to your skull. Yep. That's that's all we're focusing on. That's that's, that's all we're going to talk about. <laughs> yep. 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 Anyway, seen any good movies? <laughs> uh, yes, actually, uh, including the one that we're talking about today. Um, we are talking about uh, 2018's In Fabric, written and directed by Peter Strickland. Oh, shit, I just forgot we didn't talk about Patreon. <laughs> I completely forgot. You know, you, you know what? You know what? This, th- this is a good reminder that... Uh, we shouldn't forget to plug our Patreon, Horror Vanguard. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash Horror Vanguard, where you can support us and the show. And, uh, <laughs> and Ash, <laughs> Ash, um, what do people get if they choose to support the show? Oh, you will get early access to episodes, uh, <laughs> some behind the scenes goodness, access to the Horror Vanguard Discord, and uh, our Patreon-exclusive book club series, where we discuss uh, the high watermarks of spooky theory. We're currently going through Mark Stevens' Splatter Capital, and we've got a new book coming this October that we're really excited to start talking about with everyone. Uh, and you can you can support that and a a radical, politically engaged critique of horror culture by chipping in a few bucks a month on Patreon. If you like what you do, like if you like what we do, if you've listened to any of our episodes and enjoyed them, please do think about it. Um, we put a lot of time and effort into these, and um, although weirdly not into the self promo- into the promotion <laughs> of the show, <laughs> we're, we're so really oh god, we're so bad at this. We're so bad at this. I think I think I think it's all of the years spent in academia where where someone is like write write me a forty page paper for free, and we're just like oh great, thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. But um, weirdly, sometimes people um, people support things that they like materially, which, uh, as someone uh, in academia, is just a mind-blowing idea to me. Um, this explains why we're not very good at promoting the Patreon. But <laughs> but to all of you who do support the Patreon, thank you so much. Uh, to, to everyone listening, please do think about it. It makes a real difference to us. gives us more time to work on this project. Um, wow. God, this is maybe the worst Patreon plug we've ever done. Let's talk oh, about it. Oh, but I'm leaving it in. All of this, it's just <laughs> solid gold. It's just staying in the show. We, we had Let's... high plans to record a, a well-thought-out, articulated uh, pitch for our own promotional purposes, but no, we're, we're keeping this. <laughs> yeah, all right. That, that seems fine. That seems fine. Um, that's fine. Um <laughs> I, I, this is how, right, this is how British I am. I actually find talking about, um, Patreon, uh, for me and for Horror Vanguard deeply embarrassing, uh, even though we, we provide, <laughs> we provide something that's actually quite valuable, I think. Uh, that's how intensely British I am. Um, let's talk about a horror movie instead, because yes. I find that a lot easier. <laughs> Let, let's abruptly change topic to, uh, today's film. <laughs> As I said, we're talking about it in fabric. Um, now, Ash, uh, for people who have not seen in fabric, it only came out a couple of years ago. Fairly, uh, slightly kind of niche British filmmaker. What is in fabric about? Karl Marx is often recognized as one of the pioneers of communist thought, but what he really cared about was the value of twenty yards of linen. <laughs> we know from Marx's writing in Das Kapital, Volume One that one coat is equal to 20 yards of linen. In Marx's example, 
we see that linen has a use value, that is an inherent value of something that is, in and of itself, useful, and an exchange value, that is the rate at which one commodity can be exchanged for another. But where does this phantom value come from? The only thing that determines value is labor. 20 yards of linen is worth nothing if it's left to rot. It is only by the diabolic process through which human labor, human life, is extruded, siphoned, and rendered that anything can, anything can find value on a capitalistic marketplace. It's hard to imagine our labor as the sole source of value. Surely the contents of a bakery would have value even without the bakers, the salespeople, the cleaning staff. But that human labor is what breathes life into an otherwise mountain of moldy bread. In fabric literalizes the process by which our labor becomes value. We see our bodies and lives twisted and consumed by 20 yards of linen to craft an item of infinite exchange value. A lone blood-red dress. As the thread is drawn from the very blood of the laborers who make the dress, so too is our, our very blood drawn into our labor, even if we don't feel it. We hope that today's episode, 2018's In Fabric, validates your paradigm of consumerism. <laughs> uh, indeed. What, Let's what? talk about use value. Clap emojis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 20 this yards. is the conversation I don't think film Twitter is ready for. <laughs> yeah, but film Twitter's not ready for that. Just it's gonna be it's gonna be that um a Steven Crowder change my mind meme, but it's Karl Marx and the sign just says 20 yards of linen equals one coat. Change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't, because he was right. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um Okay, yes. That, Let's talk about use and exchange value, but as you say, <laughs> film Twitter's not ready for that. So <laughs> I just took a sip of coffee and that almost got a spit take out of me. <laughs> so so let's let's kind of start with um the stuff that film Twitter is ready for, which is talking about style and aesthetics. I mean all film depends upon a kind of aesthetic sense, right? But a film that is explicitly about fashion, that is explicitly about um you know textile manufacturing essentially it depends upon a very particular emphasis puts a very particular emphasis on style and aesthetics and one of the things i really like about this film is it has a very um very specific sense of time and place and style what do you think about the aesthetics of this I think this movie has some really interesting stylistic and aesthetic choices because it's very clearly indebted to the lineage of uh, lineage of Giallo, right? It's very clearly kind of, I think, playing with some Giallo thematics, if you will, um, especially especially in the red dress itself. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, and so and a, lot, a lot of our characters feel like they're characters in like a crime noir, right? It's got that vibe to it. Yeah, you've got the you've got the uh unhappy newly single mother. You've got um the slightly otherworldly shop attendants who we'll get onto more in a little bit. You've got the you know the quiet put upon husband who will get like very classic noirish kind of character tropes totally. Yeah, they're all they're all very real, very lived in people, and that's what you get in a lot of your you know your noir and your giallo, right? The characters are like uh, quirky, but not in a way that calls attention to their quirks. They're all very at home in their flesh. They're very lived in, and everyone in this world is very lived in, mm. which I I really really appreciate that about Strickland's filmmaking, right? Like every everything is so believable, and that makes the occult demon dress <laughs> the vampire dress that lives off the blood of people um carl carl marx's 20 yards of linen is a really compelling <laughs> villain in this movie because of how real the world we're in is yeah absolutely like uh, the opening i don't know 20 minutes are basically like a british kitchen sink neorealist drama from the 70s um, you've got Marianne uh, Jean-Baptiste playing Sheila, who's amazing in this. Um, and it's it's very quiet. It's very subdued. It has this kind of orangey-brown 70s aesthetic to her home. 
Um, and I, I think you're right. Without that, without that realism and kind of attention to time and place, I don't think people would just find it a kind of bit silly rather than sinister. Yeah, yeah. If the if the characters are really goofy, like like you could just not not do. I kept thinking like if if like these were Joss Whedon characters, <laughs> and it was just it was just a bunch of like vapid witticisms just being bounced back and forth like a tennis ball between like stock characters. Yeah. Then 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 the red dress just loses all of its fear. <laughs> yeah, I said before we started recording that this is basically what happens if um ken loach goes on like a film bender watches a load of mario bava and tries to remake suspiria this is the kind of film that he would make <laughs> oh man you know uh, not not to revisit new suspiria again but if new suspiria would have maybe been done by strickland i would have liked it a lot more <laughs> you know what i kind of get it yeah it's gonna be real. It's gonna be real theory hours just a little bit later. But first, uh, um, great use of lighting, great use of color. Real. I love that the dress is described as being artery red. Um, yes. Which again reinforces what you were talking about when you were telling us what the um, the uh, the film is about. I really like the adverts for the department store that play at regular intervals throughout the film. Um, because there's this kind of like weird hypnotic quality to them which makes the department store feel like something that's slightly out of time you know it's this film kind of feels a bit old-fashioned so sheila is like looking for someone to go on dates with through the lonely hearts column of the newspaper um and like everything has this kind of 70s throwback aesthetic and then the department store like all of the um shop attendants have this like what looks like like Edwardian or late nineteenth century costuming that they wear, and all of them talk in this slightly otherworldly tone um so the adverts are great great kind of hypnot- hypnotism that's uh, operating through them um yeah, and it's got that great kind of seventies style to it, which I really really like um. Do you think this is basically a British giallo then? Yeah. Oh no, no, totally. Like, like I think, I think th- this movie is definitely playing with a lot of giallo aesthetic modes, right? We've got we've got these very intentional uses of very dramatic colors. You know, we we already talked about the characters, like a lot of a lot of like the filmmaking and choice of angles. It feels like. Like Giallo has that like almost like extremism to it that this has, mm, yeah. And it's got it's got a lot of those same qualities being brought forward to it. And I think I think the seventies aesthetics really help with that. You know, I think I think intentionally pinning it in in this this time frame that already feels Giallo, mm. you know, like like contemporaneous to when a lot of Giallo movies were coming out. I don't know if it's ever clear that this is set in the 70s but like because there's one thing that i really like about this is that you do get those moments of like really heavily saturated color you get um slightly weird and obscure camera angles and then at the same time you get like very like reg's house is very boringly modern the scenes when sheila's at her job it looks like every like strip lighting office nightmare zone of 2005 to the present. So there is a kind of like slight temporal disjunction happening at various points here. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's that's completely accurate, and I think that plays into some of some of the giallo undertones in this film, right? Like, like you know, one of the most popular but also kind of underrated elements of giallo is like the 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 psychedelic aspects of it right the 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 fact that the realities inside of a lot of giallo movies don't conform to the same kind of rules that our reality does and and this movie plays with that right like we have the um, commercial sequence towards the end where one of our characters is like hypnotized by a tv commercial and that Uh, that reads with so much like good giallo psychedelic energy 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. And of course, totally with the kind of Marxist politics of this film, which we will get into. <laughs> <laughs> which one day in uh, in fabric part in fabric part four, which will definitely be released, <laughs> we'll talk about that. Um, should we talk then about uh, commodities, Ash? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think we should. Uh, well, do, what do you, wh- where do you want to start? Where do you want to start? Well, I think I think I think a good place to start with this is that a lot of a lot of the jokes that you and I have been cracking and laughing at maybe are are based are based entirely on uh, you know Dust Capital Volume One <laughs> mm-hmm. and and some of other Marx's writing, but like maybe it would be good to kind of like define this space before we before we get wrapped up in the fabric of it hey hey (laughs) so so uh what what is your elevator pitch uh for for people who are listening who don't know what commodity fetishism is okay my elevator pitch would be um the very opening of capital volume one mark says that societies in which capitalism is the dominant mode of economic organization are distinguished by a massive array of things um and and things that you can buy so that's where you start from you start from the fact that you buy things because you need them uh this is what um marx calls use value and once you have fulfilled the need that you had the commodity is used up and is probably destroyed or is transformed into something that's not usable um so for the the example that he uses he uses all the time is that um you needed you needed a table for your house so what you would do is you would go out with your axe to the to the nearest forest you would chop down a whole bunch of wood it would have a use value for you however when you get a sufficient surplus of commodities suddenly you don't just have things that you need and commodities can have another kind of value which is what he calls ex- exchange value commodities uh, are not just there for meeting needs they can be swapped with other commodities and this is a whole bunch of really complicated um has a bunch of complicated sociological and political implications but the biggest one is that we no longer start relating to each other um as people we start relating to each other um our relationships to other people are mediated between commodities mm-hmm and that is that's that's where I would start. What about you? No, I, I completely agree. <laughs> I think that's an, that's an excellent way to sum up what what commodity fetishism is, um, and how and how that relies on a, a lot simpler ideas like use value and exchange value. So, why are we talking about commodity fetishism in the context of this film? Because this film is begging for it. <laughs> <laughs> you you can't make a movie about a haunted 20-yard ream of linen that is literally made out of people's blood as they sew it into another commodity and not want your movie to be in dialogue with Das Capital Volume 1. Like, it's, yeah. this needs to be discussed. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. I'd, and the ending of this makes of this film... I told Ash before we started, lots of reviews describe Peter Strickland as being um, not, like, obscure, but maybe, like, a bit strange. Slightly um, imagistic, you know? Making his own kind of strange little world that you kind of have to enter into. And I'm like, no, this is basically a critique of political economy. (laughs) (laughs) this This film is super obvious about what it's doing. So... And it starts from the beginning, right? So Sheila is, you know, middle-aged, has a sort of uh, a son uh, who is um, kind of an older teenager, is doing his A-levels. Um, and his son has um, a girlfriend called Gwen, who Sheila does not like. Um, and there is obviously some kind of Oedipal tensions that the film kind of brings up. But Sheila wants to meet somebody because... Uh, you know, she's just separated from her son's father. So she goes to buy a dress 
for this blind date that she's going on. So here we have, like, commodity exchange is bound up with the sexual and emotional politics of life under capitalism as well, right? Yes. What do you think of the kind of Sheila arc in this film? <laughs> I really like it. I really like it. I think some of the best stuff it involves her um, because she's such she's such a good vehicle for a lot of like everyday conversation. And she's going through a lot of uh, immediately relatable stuff, right? She hates her horrible bosses, right? She She's having difficulties at home um, as, as a single parent. You know, she's she's on on the dating scene, which is a rickety nightmare at best, mm. you know. And so, like, there's a lot of buy in with Sheila. She she is the great like it's such a good vehicle in, in a movie that's literally about a haunted dress. You know, like the, <laughs> the, 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 the premise of this movie is so ridiculous. You really need these super grounded characters. And she does such a good job of that. Uh, I I completely agree, obviously. Um, I think, I think your point, your point there is really accurate that she, she has a really crappy job and this is another element of commodity fetishism, right? If all relationships are mediated by, by, by things, by exchangeable things, then when you go to work, you are another thing that is exchangeable. Yes. Uh, and so like... This is this is kind of a funny movie, and the best the best scenes are with Steve Oram and Julian Barrett, who play her two supervisors at her, at her like grim banking job, um, because like she gets in trouble because she might have left work like two minutes early because she went to the bathroom before she late, before she clocked out, um, and they call her in for another meeting because like. Oh, yeah, really happy with how everything is going. Uh, talked to somebody else. Uh, they had some concerns about your handshake. And like, like, and like they give her, they give her this like pamphlet on the importance of a good handshake, and they like, oh, we could do like a role play scenario, and it's this kind of like just skin crawlingly on the nose, like neoliberal managerial speak, and it's like this is another way that we are. Um, literally turned into objects under capitalism, right? We are turned into things which are, we're basically mannequins huh, um, that can be kind of ar- <laughs> that can be arranged and posed as people as as people with more economic power than us want. Yeah, I think the, I think the handshake thing is such a good emblem for this discussion, right? Because that, that is completely meaningless. It, yes. it is entirely <laughs> devoid of like like the handshake is, is entirely devoid of any kind of like true ritualized structure, but it's the perfect kind of like way that these neoliberal managerial strategies dump all of your energy, like all of your energy and all of your frustration, instead of you know turning it against your boss and organizing with your coworkers. Your boss will be like, "Well, actually, you're underperforming because your handshake technique doesn't meet our handshake technique standards. Please check the manual." Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like like the handshake, it's like a funny example of this, but like like every job I've ever worked, there's been like standards on how you can smile and what kind of tones you can use and all of these like ridiculous and arbitrary ways that management can get you. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 part of the point too, right? Like these these rules exist to limit the power of workers organizing and getting together. If somebody's causing trouble for management, they can just bring them into the office and say, "Hey, your handshakes don't meet our standards. We need to let you go." Yeah, we are we are only as, you know as Mark said, we are only at home when we're at work, and when we are not at work, we're not at home, not at home in ourselves because we can't be. You know, because we're constantly called upon to be the perfect productive unit. Because if we if we're not, we can just be replaced easily. So we are we are we all of our social relationships are mediated through objects, and we ourselves become objects that are manipulatable by by uh, a capitalist class that controls um, the the huge ever growing pool of labor power. 
You are correct. <laughs> Pause for effect. Right. No, no, I, th- I think I think that is a, a key and central part of this movie, right? Because like this is part an anthology movie. You know, we we have a cast of characters that are each leading separate lives and they're loosely connected to each other, but they're most materially connected to each other by this dress. You know, and in in the very structure of this film, we see kind of the grinding gears of commodity fetishism. These people don't have any real relationships with each other. All of their relationships are mediated through this exchange. Mm. Yes. And, I mean, the whole point... I think the thing that makes Sheila's... I like your point about this being an anthology movie, and I kind of wish it had committed a bit more to that. I don't know about you. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Like, I think that's it, one of the shortcomings of this movie is it, it's got all of the energy of an anthology movie and it's got all the energy of like a really good character piece. And so like, we, we, we understand Sheila's character so well. We, we spend so much of the time of the movie with her. So much of the setup is with her. Like, like this is Sheila's movie. And, and um, <clears throat> the actress who plays Sheila Marianne uh, Jean-Baptiste does such a good job with the role. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of a shame that like towards the end of the movie, we start letting her go off to the side as we bring in all these other characters that are part of this anthology piece. And and like maybe this is less a problem of, of the script itself and more a problem of how it's edited. So I can see an edit of this movie that's almost like, oh my God, I'm going to sound like such a film Twitter guy, but like a Tarantino <laughs> cut. Where like the first like like sixty percent of the movie are just all these disconnected vignettes of all of these like weirdo people's lives, and then bam, they all start tying together with this haunted dress. Like I can see that flowing a little bit better for me. Mm. There um, we go. I've ca- I've cashed in my one use of. <laughs> I'll let it slide. I mean the Tarantino thing. <laughs> I mean, I was gonna say here's my kind of criticism before we get back into like the theory side of things is maybe that this film is like for me and you this film is like kind of a bit obvious <laughs> there's a there's so a, when mean, you, sorry go on i was just gonna say so when you, when, you, when you um i hadn't seen this movie until you suggested that i watch it and you you let me know that it was a funny like it had some funny elements there were some comedic elements to it and and the funniest stuff going through the entire movie for me was all of the really on the nose like m- like Marxism one hundred and one that was going on in this movie, <laughs> like like even the fact that our monster is twenty yards of linen, like I never stopped laughing when like all of this stuff that was just like like in my head, I watching this movie, I was just like there was no way that they just made a use value joke. That's <laughs> like, too good. Um, so no, I completely agree with what you're saying, <laughs> and I'm like you know. I I I think we're kind of we're kind of used to to we we've been doing this show for for you know a little while now and we have dealt with um you know all of the big icons of political horror we've looked at you know Nightmare on Elm Street we've looked at um Die You Zombie Bastards we've looked at <laughs> uh you know all the big kind of landmark stuff um and then watching this I was sort of like Oh, I get it. <laughs> I, get, I get it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot I really like about this. I, I love the cinematography. I love the um, the kind of concept. Script is amazing. Performances are all great. But I, there was a bit of me where I was like, uh, so yeah, it's so it's it's. I, I was just like, so you know, we couldn't just have us. We couldn't just have like a static shot on. Um, capital volume one for two hours we had to do something so let's <laughs> let's do this I, I was i was honestly like and, and maybe i missed it but i kept like scanning the background because i was waiting for there to be like just a copy of dust capital like sitting on a desk or like tucked into a shelf or something and maybe i missed it it could still be out there um and the other thing is the other thing is like i don't necessarily know if this is weird enough like it's it's a weird idea with a very kind of clear political metaphor going through it but i'm like some people i read some reviews where they're like 
the story is really hard to follow. I'm like, structurally, this is a very straightforward film. Like, it doesn't explicitly spell everything out for you, but if you're paying attention, it's super clear about what it's doing. And I'm like, if we really want to make... I kind of semi-jokingly describe this as Marxist giallo. If we really want to do that, can we not kind of push this just a little bit further? And like, to everybody out there who's interested in doing any kind of film criticism, you know, like, watch some fucking movies. <laughs> <laughs> like, this, this movie is... I, w- I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't call it a narrative purely linear. This movie is doing some interesting things with how it's telling the story. But like, this this isn't like a a kaleidoscopic mess of a story that comes together in the last five minutes through through a work of pure artistic brilliance, you know. And like, all all it would take to recognize that is like watching movies, you know. Maybe maybe going back through through the catalog of film and watching some of the uh, uh, high watermarks of cinematography and talent behind the camera. But nope. <laughs> Everybody, everybody just watches fucking Marvel movies, and then anything that's not a, a perfectly linear, straight line with easily recognizable bad guys is a complicated art piece. Yeah, because this is—I mean, like there is so, there is some great structurally and formally experimental filmmaking happening in uh, in Britain, but this is not it. This is just a this is just a movie made by someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> It's <laughs> just a really good movie, yeah. Um, but that's that's uh, so griping, griping about griping uh, aside. The, the writing of critics aside. Um, what what do you think about commodity fetishism? This movie and Twenty Yards of Linen. I think that what we should talk about just a little bit is the point that commodity fetishism is a kind of loaded phrase. So, yes, let's kind of unpack it just for a second. So. It comes from, in Marx's usage, it comes from an appropriation of racist 19th century anthropologists who would go around the world and would see indigenous people's religious practices um, and they would go, ah, well, this symbol or this space or this um, icon is is a fetish for their spiritual behaviours. I mean, it's so silly. They're ascribing to this thing all these kind of powers that it doesn't have. And then Marx very presciently goes, well, isn't that exactly what we do with literally every kind of purchase that we ever make? You know, we're ascribing powers to this commodity and the its immaterial qualities. We're ascribing value to it. And we have these symbolic levels of exchange happening that we think stand for something real and is us exercising our kind of power and agency in the world. We're just, you know, he, he's very cutting about how we are, how, you know, 19th century society at the time was ascribing all of these kind of fetish behaviours to um, indigenous peoples around the world, but being completely blind to the ways that our own behaviour is about faith in the value of commodities you know something uh you know a price standing in for a certain amount of labor power that's gone into producing something one other thing that i wanted to point out is that in this film that kind of fetishism where the object stands in for something else um is actually tied up into a kind of psychosexual dimension of things as well which i actually think is is really important not to leave out right no i I, th- and I think it's it's so it's so vital to understanding what we're talking about and especially the world that we're all kind of stuck in right now like i think psychosexual tension isn't really in vogue as a discursive framework at the moment <laughs> but i think it is it nevertheless winds up being like so wildly important especially when uh, coupled with commodity fetishism, right? Um, so in 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 fabric, <laughs> uh, we have a uh, my favorite character of this movie. I have a thing for villains who love what they're doing, and if <laughs> if we have a movie where a villain is passionate about their job and they're having a good time being bad, I just like, oh, I love them so much. <laughs> 
like uh emperor palpatine always bring him up he's always a happy guy always got a smile <laughs> on his face you know like hey, he's he lo- looks upbeat <laughs> yeah love love what you do you'll never work a day in your life <laughs> <laughs> but uh in this movie we have we have another one of these ama- amazing villains who's just every day of their life they're waking up they're feeling peppy they're drinking a smoothie and they're back to being evil but um it's it's miss luckmore played by mm-hmm. fatma muhammad and she uh runs a, a kind of like a clothing store it has this like amazing vintage like 60s 70s vibe to it she's got this really old school vibe like she feels like she could be at home in like the 50s the 40s the 30s the 20s you know she she feels like awkwardly timeless and i mm-hmm. love it yeah but um every every scene where she's handling the dress you know we, we get this amazing exchange between uh luckmore and sheila when sheila's first buying the dress um there, uh, Miss Luckmore sets it down on the counter. They're they're exchanging money, and then Miss Luckmore grabs Sheila's hand and she's like, "Feel the dress here." And then you get like these really intimate shots of like their fingers running along the folds of the dress. It's really erotic, and it plays its eroticism through this commodity. Mm-hmm. And in the dress itself, like, and this ties into like conversations about like heteronormative politics too, because the dress isn't just a dress because this is commodity fetishism so nothing can be the thing that it is you know the the dress is a is a symbol of you know sexual attraction it's a symbol of availability and it's like oh we're gonna get into this more when we talk about heteronormativity later on but like yes (laughs) yeah absolutely right and also um what is it that luckmore says about the dress it's a provocation that's how she mm-hmm. describes it, because Sheila is looking for something to wear on a date, right? That's that's what yes. that's why she's there. It's because purchasing is intimately bound up with sexual politics, right? And I think that's something that this film is really aware of. And another another kind of aspect of this is in how Sheila relates to Gwen, um, who is her son Vince's girlfriend. And Sheila and Gwen do not... I thought when you talked about like villains who really love what they're doing, you were going to talk about Gwen. Because <laughs> Gwen and Sheila do not like each other at all. And there is this kind of, you know, um, kind of slightly Oedipal relationship happening. Uh, slightly. <laughs> she, she, Sheila repeatedly describes, uh, describes Gwen as disgusting. And says that what what they're doing is disgusting, because she ends up uh, seeing them having sex one night, and keeps finding like incredibly <laughs> elaborate lingerie in her laundry, which is not hers; it's Gwen's. So there's this kind of like uh, there's that element of tension that leads up to the point where she goes out to buy the dress, and it's really interesting. I think that Luckmore describes it as um, a provocation, because. What else is a dress for? Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's a great way to to analyze this. Like, there's so much good tension um, between Gwen, played by Gwendolyn Christie. Um, I don't know what was going on with the name decisions there. Um, for you kids out there, you might recognize Gwendolyn Christie as Captain Phasma from those new Star Wars movies. But, um, <laughs> Um, I'm kidding. No one would recognize Captain Phasma because no one remembers that character. <laughs> um, it's getting, I'm getting in my my hits against Disney. I haven't done this enough recently, so I got to take them where I can. But I love I love the weird tension between Sheila and Gwen. You know, like because there is there is this awkward Oedipal uh, dynamic between them because Gwen Gwen is significantly older than Sheila's son, mm-hmm. and that that plays into it. Really, she appears to be significantly older, I should say. And then, like, they're all living together under the same house. Well, Gwen doesn't live there, but she's there enough. And, like, oh, it is so it is so good that their, that their tension is also an example of commodity fetishism, right? Because their tension, it's actually over the relationship to the son, right? And, you know, like, Sheila, Sheila disapproves of her son's relationship choice. She's afraid of losing her son, like many parents are when, they're, when their children start to grow their own relationships and leave the nest whatever you know gwen has similar tensions with you know what could be one day a, a, an in-law 
and like instead of like reading their tensions through each other and then like having a character conflict those tensions are mediated through a commodity they're mediated back into that dress yeah absolutely absolutely um and that's the whole point of what drives her to go and buy it then she goes on the date with uh the amazingly named character adonis <laughs> which is which is maybe one of my like uh all of her dates take her to the same greek restaurant um and he's just like the most boorish like disinterested guy he promises her that she, he's going to be holding a rose when he arrives and like when he gets there he's like not really paying attention but just like pulls out this limp uh cellophane wrapped thing from his briefcase and then goes eh, there you go which brings us on to an important point, uh, which comes out much more clearly in the um, kind of second half of the anthology, which is that heterosexuality is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Um, Sheila has just an awful time uh, trying to find a partner. Um, and then we get onto the story of reg and his fiance babs um what did you think about this second half i i think i think using the this is a good way to like transition to, between the two halves of the film you know i and i'm like it all goes it all goes back to that dress <laughs> mm-hmm. but like like nothing about my one of my favorite parts about this movie is that nothing about it is very subtle in the slightest you know, like the, this this movie, um, visually as an experience, it, it's subtle, but none of the metaphors are right. As, and like the fact the the fact that Sheila's boyfriend is named Adonis, and when you think Adonis, you think you know a, a, a man cut from stone, powerful jawline, rippling muscles, the Fabio look. The, the, this guy is the most forgettable, boring looking dude, <laughs> and like. Like you see, you see so much heteronormative uh, gender disparity at play here, right? You know, they're they're just going on a date. This isn't like the lead up to a proposal. This isn't something magnificent. Like it's just a regular date, and Sheila has gone all the way out of her way to acquire this incredibly ornate and fancy dress, as as Luckmore suggests, a provocation. And Adonis just just looks like a he walked out of work <laughs> walked out of work and picked the deadest flower on his way over yeah he stopped off at like the gas station and got right. like got like in the bargain bin um yeah yeah he yeah he just took it and no one cared or something because it's just awful but like like you know we see these kind of like these gender disparities all of these things that are weighed down with like a heteronormative worldview pivoting around the the commodity of this dress and then yeah mm. then we then we switch to a very di- a very different kind of uh domestic nightmare <laughs> with um uh so so i know one of the things that was most compelling for me uh that relates to to reg and pab is but how how did you like their characters and their setup in this movie well it's it's really interesting right so um Sheila does actually meet someone who seems like an just like a nice person. Um and she she is increasingly rightly paranoid and terrified of the stress and the weird shit that's happening to her. And she ends up seeing it floating alongside the road when she's driving and she has a car accident and is killed. Uh the dress ends up in a charity shop where it is bought by um I think it's Reg's future father in law. And that he forces his he forces Reg to wear on his stag night. That's how things start. Um, I I think they're really interesting. I think it's like it opens with the stag night, and it's like the typical like uh, you know heteronormative boring stag night of like drinking and embarrassing the person that you're ostensibly there to celebrate. Reg just looks like so deeply uncomfortable but is also within that kind of prison of masculine normativity that he can't not do as he's told uh what do you think there is so much with reg's character reg is like one of the characters for me in this film there's so much about him that's interesting right because because you're right he's absolutely 
imprisoned in in like the the oppressive frameworks of of a society dominated by like a cisgendered heteronormative worldview and like like the stagnite is such a great vehicle for that right yeah because he like every shot with him he just looks so afraid and withdrawn and timid and like at the end at the end of his stagnite he's like falling on the ground and like just just completely out of it while everyone else around him is like towering over him and laughing like there's so so much going on with him in those sequences especially because he's wearing women's clothing which adds like this entire other layer to it Mm. um but for me for me the one thing about reg that i find to be really interesting is his job um yeah yeah reg uh is a household repairman who does appliance repair he fixes washing machines and throughout the movie, we have broken washing machines as a recurring symbol. Uh, you know, uh, Sheila's washing machine breaks down. There's, a, there's another broken washing machine later in the movie. The dress breaks whatever machine you try and wash it in. And I think, I think there's something really interesting about Reg, this character who is clearly suffering under, under the constraints of a patriarchy he can't live up to. And his job is this kind of like intersection of what what are like traditional quote unquote masculine values, right? He's a mechanic, he's good with tools, he repairs stuff. And like the domestic sphere, right? What does he repair? He repairs the machine that does the washing. Yeah. You know, so he his character on like every level falls at these intersections between what's expected of men under the patriarchy and kind of the realities of not living up to that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's he is um caught the but caught between those two worlds, right? And he's it would be very easy to like make him into like the classic henpecked husband stereotype. Mm-hmm. But there's this moment where you kind of get to see something else about him, which is where he's looking into into the department store window and has this like intense flashback of being uh a small boy and like getting something new from this sultry voiced shop attendant and there's this kind of like like moment where you're like oh there's there's it's commodity fetishism all the way down (laughs) (laughs) it's that meme it's that meme of looking at the earth and there's one astronaut (laughs) behind the other it's like so it turns out it's all commodity fetishism always was (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean like i think that's a great way a great way to look at this entire movie is that like we have all of these relationships but none of them are the relationships they need to be they're all mediated through this dress yeah and of course the dress carries with it a mark right anyone who wears it you uh reg wears it on his stag do sheila wears it on her date uh babs wears it they all end up with this really like raw looking um rash or irritation on their chest um Mm -hmm. and it's like it's it's a physical representation of its of an invisible presence right commodities make their presence felt upon us right if you don't have certain things that you need um i mean the obvious example would be healthcare you know you'll carry you carry with you the physical manifestations of that of that deprivation um so consumption is commodity fetishism is is not only a mediating thing of um how we relate to one another but it also can it can change us physically yeah and like i'm so glad you brought up like the hidden things within the commodity and i think that's one of the most compelling things about this film and I think this will lead us into the end, the, the climax. Yes. yes, absolutely. But like the, this dress is propelled by this unknown phantom force that's seeking revenge of everyone who buys it. It leaves this, this kind of like chemical burn on the flesh of everyone who wears it. You know, it's, but its agency is never known, right? Like we never really know where the dress comes from. We, we don't learn its mysteries. And th- this really speaks to a key aspect, right? You know, like like labor creates all value. It is the labor that makes things worth what they're worth. And yeah. we, see, we see this in the dress, right? We see one of the key aspects of commodity fetishism is we don't really have a relationship with our commodities anymore. You know, like we can't, um, 
you know, like the classic example with a table, right? You know, like it's not just a table anymore. Now it's all of this work that's been poured into it from all of these people we'll never meet from all of these jobs. We have no way of, of having any kind of intimate relationship to. Mm-hmm. And we, we see this with the dress, but the dress is able to enact a kind of like force. It's able to make its presence felt right. All of, all of this kind of like hauntological weight that comes with all of our commodities the phantom hands of all of these workers who have built and transported and, and made possible these objects are manifested by the dresses haunting. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and this, as you say, brings us on to the ending really well. Um, in which... All right. Let's talk about the revolutionary uh, violence of the bourgeoisie, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, yes, let's... Alright, real real, real Marxism hours. Um, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx says that when you look at the transformation of the world, like, capitalism has completely transformed everything. And it's, he, he says it explicitly, the bourgeois historically has played a most revolutionary part. Like, the world has been fundamentally changed. Um, and he doesn't make... Like, he doesn't say that that's all terrible. He's incredibly scathing about it, but he also goes, actually, production has become something that, like, previous generations would never have dreamt possible. But here's a quote from the Communist Manifesto that I want to kind of kick off this discussion of the ending with. Um, the bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honoured and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into its paid wage laborers. The bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. All fixed, fast-frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new-formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. If you've never read it, you should read the Communist Manifesto. It's so fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I think the, the, the infamy that that book has earned, or that pamphlet, I guess, <laughs> is, is well-deserved. But this is like an important point, right? The people who go to this department store generally are good subjects of the bourgeois, right? Uh, Babs is there um, mostly because she wants to find out where the dress has come from, um, even though it came to her through a charity shop. But the rest of the people who are there are like, you know, good middle class purchasers. And Marx makes a point that the world has been fundamentally changed, but everything that you thought was kind of solid and true and dependable has just been instrumentalized, destroyed, melted away. And in fact, production revolutionizes so often those new social relationships, they will melt away before they can, uh, as he says, before they can ossify. But this is why the fight breaks out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what did you think? I, I'm going to explain what I mean in a second. But what did you think of that? F- of what I will generously term the fight scene in this film? I loved it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I loved it to death. <laughs> it was the most fun I had uh, through the course of watching the movie. Watching a bunch of uh, uh, pe- petty bourgeoisie uh, people uh, beat the shit out of each other <laughs> uh, is always something that I will derive pleasure from. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It was perfect. Um, I know. I, I love. I love the context. I love everything that's going on around us during this scene, right? Uh, because we see, like, the, they're not really doing. They're not. They're not looting, right? They're, they're not conducting this violence as a means to liberate the wealth that, that is withheld within this shop, right? They're not taking back what is theirs because they have nothing to take back. They're they're in like this ultra petty internal conflict, and they're just like slapping each other around. They're throwing stuff into displays. It's like the most like inept and inconsequential violence. Mm-hmm. 
and I love it to death. And um, so there's like a warning that plays over the intercom uh, once once the fight breaks out, and um, the fight also leads to a fire, which proceeds to burn down the department store. Uh, but over the loudspeaker, as the department store is burning down, we hear. A dramatic affliction has compromised our trusted department store. Get out graciously. <laughs> and like that, that mirroring like that, because it just repeats over and over again as, as the uh, speakers playing it are melt and destroyed and the audio degrades. But that, that like that message, right? Like a, a dramatic affliction. Like when I heard that, like it just, it just reminds me of the way that we talk or the way the media talks about violence. Right. It's always it's always like um, an, an incident involving violent protesters happened when they accosted a police's baton. Yeah. You know, like, like it's always like the most awkward construct of wording. And like that, those wordings were invented by the police, police, quote unquote, unions, although police can't have unions, like invented those weird, horrible nightmare phraseologies as a way to move blame. So it's not police shooting someone. It's an officer involved incident. And the the a dramatic affliction has compromised our trusted department store is the best way to refer to your customers have broken out into frenzied violence and are destroying <laughs> everything around them. Yeah, because we can't say like I the reason I I chose that quote is like you're forced to confront your true relationships with others. However, mm. if if the only way you can relate to others is on the level of the object then violence is going to result because you won't see them as truly human. Yes. And that's exactly what happens, right? There's there's so many great juxtapositions in this final scene of like uh people getting like thrown through glass cabinets and like mannequins and shop dummies being torn apart and it's yep. like pretty clear symbolism here, guys. Just just a bit. <laughs> Um, but this right this is this is the point right if if bourgeois social relations have gotten rid of you know all of those old-fashioned things like manners and social decorum and uh, kind of covered that up with the veneer of like politeness if you're in a service industry right you know you'll you'll be nice because the customer is always right if if you take away that what you're left with is violence I'm so happy you brought up the mannequins too. I think like the, the the mannequins are another reoccurring kind of symbolic element of this film, and we get we get mannequins the whole way through the movie. And mm. one of my favorite scenes is uh, when when the rioting starts and the department store burns down. We see this mannequin that's that's dressed up like a woman start to melt mm. uh, until it collapses, right? And then we see yeah, like as you mentioned, the mannequins being thrown around, and mannequins wearing uh, this dress and similar dresses. Um, like a lot of like weird ritual involving mannequins like it's so good because what are mannequins if not like the perfect example of what happens to us when we can only relate to each other through commodity fetishism we all become these things upon which commodity hangs mm. right we're not we're not people we're mannequins you know under capitalism there are there are no people there are no citizens there are no there are no students there there are no workers there are, there are just things that hold commodities and that are completely fungible and interchangeable and destroyable. You wouldn't think twice about watching a mannequin melt because it's just a thing that holds a dress. But under capitalism, we're forced into a relationship where unless we're fighting to change it, we see each other as mannequins. We see each other as like, like oh, that's not a person. They're, they're, not, they're not going home and dealing with their own internal conflicts. They don't have their passions and joys. That's just the guy who sells me stuff. You know, like yeah. that, that is a person reduced to these soul elements. And I think this is a good way of kind of wrapping things up, right? Which is, I've been, I've been reading a lot of um, Marshall Berman, who was a um, professor at the Graduate, graduate University um, uh, in New York, uh, the Community University in New York, CUNY, for years and years and years. I was like a really famous Marxist humanist. And his point was, one of the big things that he constantly talked about was the fact that Marxism is not just a kind of economic thing. It solves an existential question as well, right? Which is that under capitalism, do we actually have genuine human relationships with the vast majority of people that we meet? And he said, according to the logic of the market, no, mm -hmm. right? Capitalism is about getting it, the commodity fetishism that is the default mode of existence for a capitalist society is designed to get you to relate 
to people as things. It is a profoundly dehumanizing. You know, the, he, this, there's this great book of his called Adventures in Marxism, which opens with his, uh, with him discussing uh, his father. Um, you know, working class man, grew up in New York in the fifties and loved Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman because he identified with him. And it's like Miller was showing exactly what happens, right? You know, the fact that you are used up and disposed of, you're thrown away. So, like, I, I really like this film as a way of it isn't just literalizing an economic metaphor; it's showing on an existential, psychological uh, level. Like, what actually happens to us when we fall under the sway of the commodity? I think that is such a fantastic way to to look at what happens in this movie. Because it's not a all-or-nothing... Like, this isn't isn't a zero-sum game, right? How commodity fetishism reshapes how we relationship. It's a thing with a lot of gradients and scales and sliding factors. Mm. You know, like... It, it, it permeates every aspect of our lives and every aspect of every relationship some more than others and i think that's the tricky part and i think that's one of the things that this movie does so well you know because they're like the, this movie has a really good way of like dividing up its primary tertiary tetriarchal and like uh background characters in such a way that kind of like mirrors commodity fetishism you know, like there's so many like background people that are just shuffling around and it just it, it feeds into the metaphor so well. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I do think bits of this film are a little bit too on the nose. Um, I mean, do not pay any attention to Miss Look, look More. <laughs> 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 you know... With these hypnotic adverts encouraging you to do what? To look more. Um, because you don't actually know. We think that we are the agential ones, right? This is the whole point of capitalist consumerism. We think we're the ones who make choices. But really, commodities have a kind of power of their own. You know, Mark uh, Marx talks about it has this demoniacal power. It's, it's occultic. Um... And we we lose sight of that so easily by design. No, I, I think I think you're, I think you're completely right about this. Like like I think like if 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 you're if you identify as any kind of Marxist or you're familiar with Marxist theory, right? You will like like this movie is not shy <laughs> about mm. what's going on. Any final points? Um, yeah, the only the last thing I want to talk about is is uh, uh, the very final scene of the movie, right? Uh, you know, we see we see Miss Luckmore who uh, is escaping the fire, right? She she uh, takes off her wig and she she uh, grabs half a mannequin and hops into the dumbwaiter, mm-hmm. um, which uh, you know like allows her to descend into the lower floors of the shopping center. And we see we see like little window by little window as she's passing floors. Um, <clears throat> we see uh, Sheila. We see Reg. We see all of the characters who've worn the dress throughout the movie. They're they're stitching the dress, and the the fabric isn't coming out of a spool. It's coming out of their arm. It's coming out of their blood. Mm. Uh, that's that's where the thread comes from that stitches the red dress back together. Um, but I think for me, the most chilling part is that we don't end with our three characters. We keep going. And there's empty room after empty room where the sewing setup is is ready to go for more people. And, and if anything is emblematic for how capitalism just chews up our bodies and, and turns them into these just, just items, it's it's that endless sequence of rooms waiting for new bodies to grind into value. Yes, absolutely. I really like those final shots. You know, where you see... I mean, this is, this is the other thing, right? Um again, a really classic Marxist point, which is that it is the very kind of, like, sinew of of working people that gets put into the products of their labour. You know? 
and and like you say that's that's the worst thing that it just rolls past so many more empty rooms because you know there are going to be so many mo- many more dresses that will be put out into the world by the elegantly dressed uh shop stewards and customer service representatives of this department store <laughs> Well, this has been this has been a fun conversation about a uh, a red dress, um, a red dress, or all the reasons why you should read Capsule Volume One. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, this is like, uh, so so. I recently revisited The Matrix about two weeks ago. I hadn't seen it for years and years, mm-hmm. and so one night I was just kind of, you know, uh, uh, wondering to myself, like, does it hold up? You know, like, like for me personally, on a critical level, like it's been so long and like, like um, all, all of the, this information about the Wachowski sisters has come out and changed, and you know, re-readings of these original films. And like, there, there's, there's that scene where they're walking through the simulation and Morpheus is like, Neo, were you looking at me or were you looking at In Fabric, the 2018 <laughs> movie? <laughs> and it's just like, oh my God, I really, really, really like In Fabric as as a vehicle for for discussing commodity fetishism for discussing value on on marxist terms it is such a good movie for this kind of like this this is marxism political economy 101 <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, how about you any any final thoughts before we moonwalk on out of here uh horror fans watch peter strickland's uh, in fabric then uh, run to your, to your local library and get a copy of the Communist Manifesto and it'll change your life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, also, everybody out there, um, if, if a woman who looks like uh, Herzog's Nosferatu attempts to sell you a, a mysterious red dress, uh, don't buy it. <laughs> um, I love that our hot take... Uh, from talking about in fabric is that the communist manifesto is great and more people should read it oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah the, you know what you know what this movie is great and you know what else is great marxism <laughs> <laughs> let's stop there shall we <laughs> <laughs> i can't think of a better place to I, stop. Th- there's no topping that there's no topping that we're, we're done we're done goodbye everyone <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>